6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Patriarchs of Israel. Well, we are in hour four of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and we're, we're going to try to summarize the rest of the book of Genesis in this hour, chapters 12 through 50. And we're going to read it very fast. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, seriously, unlike our usual style, where we literally go through it verse by verse. And I might mention, by the way, we have a commentary on the book of Genesis in which we take 24 one-hour sessions on the entire book of Genesis which does it far more justice. We're obviously going through just to give you a flavor and an overview of it. But we're going to cover Abraham from chapters 12 through 20, chapters 21 through 26, Isaac, 27 to 36, Jacob, and 37 to 50, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph being considered collectively the patriarchs. This will constitute our four. And again, of course, we're going now from Abraham up to the Exodus. The book of Genesis will close with a coffin in Egypt. And the book of Exodus will pick up from there on. So we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Uh, obviously, we just hit some highlights. Abraham, of course, is a key figure to the Jews and the Christians. Uh, it's mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. He is venerated by all three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and in a certain sense, Islam. He has some distinctive titles in the scripture. He is known as the father of the faithful. There is a sense in which anyone that is faithful to God is, in a sense, a son of Abraham. Someone that's Jewish would consider himself a son of Abraham, obviously. But also anyone that's faithful can claim that title from Hebrews 11:8 and elsewhere. Abraham also had another title. He's known as the friend of God. A friend of God. That comes from James's epistle in chapter 2, which happens to be the epistle of Yaakov, by the way, but we don't think of it that way in the English, do we? Abraham is the beneficiary of a commitment by God that's everlasting, it's eternal, and it's unconditional. And it's very important for you to understand the fact that it's unconditional because that this covenant with Abraham is what is being challenged in the world today in the struggle over Jerusalem and the land of Israel. The world, not just the PLO, the European Union, the UN, whatever, are attacking this premise of the Abrahamic covenant. Also, Abraham represents a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And we'll talk about that as we go. That's in Abraham's personal life. It's also 
embodied in his two sons, Ishmael, the son of the flesh, and Isaac, regarded as the son of the spirit. It's also emblematic between Sarah, his wife, and Hagar, her handmaid. Galatians 4 deliberately makes that parallel in a broader metaphorical sense. We're also, Abraham is going to encounter a very strange character by the name of Melchizedek, who's a subject of many misconceptions, but a very interesting person. Because Melchizedek is unique in the scripture as being a king and a priest. One of the things that's going to get emphasized from Moses on is that the tribe of Judah is the royal line, the tribe of Levi, the priestly line, and they are separate. The separation of the Levitical priesthood and the line of David and so forth are distinctive. There are only three people that are kings and priests together in one person. Melchizedek was the first that we see in the scripture. Jesus Christ is distinctive in that he's a king and a priest. And that's what the writer to Hebrews emphasizes. And the third person is the body of Christ. The church is promised to be kings and priests as exemplified by the 24 elders in Revelation and elsewhere. We're also going to talk about, even though we're going pretty quickly here, we are going to pause and take a serious look at Genesis 22 because it's so pivotal. The Akedah, as it's called in Hebrew, where Abraham offers his son Isaac. A very widely misunderstood passage. Abraham's father is Terah. Terah had Abraham, Nahor, Haran, and through another wife, had a daughter by the name of Sarai. So Sarai is going to marry Abraham. She is really his half-sister. They have a common father, but different mothers. So later on, and several times, Abraham will pass her off as his sister. He's not lying, but he is deceiving. You see, so... Abraham will have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael will be the son of Abraham with Sarah's handmaid, and uh, Isaac, his son, directly. And Nahor will have a number of uh, children that won't concern us directly. But um, Haran has a, a series of sons, one of which is Lot. So Lot is a nephew of Abraham, and that's going to become important later on. Under Nahor, we have Bethuel, who has Rebekah and Laban. And Rebekah will become important because she will end up becoming the wife of Isaac. And so these things are interlaced, if you will. And of course, uh, from that union, we have Esau and Jacob. And we'll talk about that in great length. Under Laban, of course, he has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And they're the ones that will marry Jacob and they, along with their hand, two handmaids, those four women, will raise the 12 tribes that make up the nation Israel. So that's the family. That's the family tree. The 12 tribes will come from that issue. Over on the other side, Lot will have, um, by incest with his daughters, inadvertently while he's drunk, they take him, and they will. their offspring will be Moab and Ammon. The Moabites and Ammonites have a pretty dismal heritage. But I want to dwell a little bit on Genesis 12. 
The Lord was said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12 are precious, precious verses. This whole passage is, of course, regarded as the call of Abraham. Get thee out of thy country, and so forth. But then God makes a commitment to him. I'll make thee a great nation. I'll bless thee, and make thy name great, and shall be a blessing. Notice verse 3. Because I think this is the only reason God has not judged America. As I travel, one of the most common questions I get from audiences that are knowledgeable is, why hasn't God judged America. We've become the exporter of everything God abhors, the sin in this country, the abandonment of our heritage, etc., etc. You make a long list of things. Why hasn't God judged? In fact, Billy Graham summarized it so eloquently years ago. He said, if God doesn't judge America, you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever. Why hasn't God judged America? And many of us believe it's because of verse 3 of chapter 12. God has promised Abram, I'll bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curse thee, and thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We suspect that the reason God hasn't judged America is because of our support for His people Israel. That doesn't mean we have to agree with their policies, no. But we do provide for their protection. And that, I think, is God-honoring. People say, Chuck, aren't you worried about Israel? No, I'm not worried about Israel, because I know that he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Amen. But uh, they have some tough times ahead. Their, their, their history, the beginning, ups and downs and end, all laid out in advance. It's in the Bible. I worry about America because it's not in the Bible. And despite what some people like to say, I think I worry about America because our only hope in this country is for a revival, that we might get our act together, but that's a whole other thing we'll get to sometime. There are seven I wills in this commitment of God to Abraham. He says, I'll make of thee a great nation, and indeed he did. I will bless thee, and indeed he does. I will make thy name great, indeed there's no great name on the planet earth greater than Abraham's. Thou shalt be a blessing, indeed he is. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse him that curse thee, and in thee shall all families, not just the Jews, all families of the earth be blessed. Key verse. There are three major promises in the Bible. This is the first of the three. The covenant with Abraham. In his seed, all nations will be blessed. Key thing. God's covenant with the nation Israel. Now this had some conditions to it. If they faithfully served him, they'd prosper. If they forsake him, they would be destroyed. And indeed they were. On again, off again, again and again and again. Their whole history is a profile of that commitment. But the third covenant was God's covenant with David, that his family would produce the Messiah who would reign over God's people forever. In Genesis 14, we encounter the battle of nine kings, a strange story. There are four Shemite kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Shadar, Lamer, and uh, Tidal, king of nations. And uh, these four will have a war with the five Hamite uh, uh, nations. Um, Bera the king of Sodom, Bersha the king of Gomorrah, Sheneb the king of Admah, uh, Zemeb the king of Zeboim, and king of Bela. So 
the Hamites served the Shemites for 12 years. But then the third year, 13th year, they rebelled. Shardalamer, the one on the left, this group. And by the way, what's interesting, you'll notice the list there. Small point, but I'd like you to learn from this. The key guy is Shardalamer, but he's listed third. He's the power guy, of course, of the whole bunch, it turns out. But it's interesting, the one that's named first is Amraphel, the king of Shinar, which is Babylon later. It's mentioned first, I believe, because the Bible tends to list things with a, an order that's editorially significant. That's the king that's going to be important downstream. But in any case, uh, Shadalamar defeats the Hamites and takes them all captive. But among them was Lot, Abraham's nephew. He was, a, he, he was in Sodom as an alderman. And we'll discover him very active in uh, chapter 19, a few chapters from now. But anyway, taking Lot was a big mistake. Because Abraham finds out that his nephew's been taken. Understand that these four kings wiped out these five kings. This, this was not a trivial military operation. But Abraham with his own people will rescue Lot and take spoil of these four kings. Abraham, this text tells us, had 318 trained soldiers in his own household. Abraham may have been one of the wealthiest people on the planet Earth at that time. We don't, he's not some kind of tribal leader. He is a, he is a powerful personage at this time. So we have the slaughter of the kings. Abraham's army rescues Lot and the people of Sodom. And when he does this, he comes back to a place called Salem that will later become Jerusalem. And there we encounter this strange character called Melchizedek, which is a title rather than a name, King of Righteousness. He's the king and priest of this place called Salem. He receives Abram's tithes. For reasons we have no insight into, Abram presents tithes of his victory to Melchizedek. This is just a couple of verses in chapter 14 of Genesis. It would disappear into obscurity except for the fact that it is leaned upon in Psalm 110 and in three chapters of the book of Hebrews. Make a big thing of this character of Melchizedek. Making a contrast between Melchizedek and the priesthood that we all know from Moses and Levi and all of that that comes later. So this guy is distinctive. He's a king and a priest. He's the king of the Most High God. He does a strange thing. He administers to Abraham bread and wine. And this bread and wine theme goes all the way through the scripture. The bread and wine with Melchizedek offering it to him. The bread and wine that are prominent in the dreams of Joseph in Egypt later. And of course the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, etc. There is a theme there that all ties together consistently. Some people try to make Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't think so. The, the, the writer of the Hebrews makes the point that Melchizedek had no beginning and end of days, simply meaning it wasn't recorded to make a rhetorical point. And many people misunderstand that. We know Melchizedek was a man. Uh, 
because it says so. Many of these theories are on frail ground. But he is used as an example for a lot of points later on in the Scripture. But in Genesis 15, the next chapter, we have a very critical chapter to understand. There is an unusual ritual used in those days when one wanted to make a very sacred covenant between themselves. They would set up an offering, split it in two parts, and the two signatories to the agreement would walk together in a figure eight between these parts. They would cut a covenant is the term, that's where the term means barat, and they would divide an offer in two parts, and then they would march in a figure eight between them, repeating the terms of their agreement. That was the way they did things in those days. Well, God indulges in a rather strange version of this ritual. He has Abraham set it all up for him, but before he can begin, he puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and God goes it alone in the form of a flame through this thing. The point God is making is that this is a sacred covenant, but it is unconditional. Abraham could add nothing to it. There's no way he could violate it. He's not a party to it except as a beneficiary. God is doing it on his own. It deals with the commitment of the land to his descendants from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And when somebody wants to talk about the West Bank, say, what river did you have in mind? Because the Jordan isn't the eastern border. Ultimately, it'll be, of course, the river Euphrates. And it's very, very strange that there are four angels bound in the river Euphrates that will be released in the book of Revelation. So it's strange that some of these demonic or these uh, spiritual things have territorial aspects to them. God tells them that you're going to be, your, your descendants will be afflicted in Egypt for 400 years. That's what Acts tells us also. Exodus 12, we know they were in there 430 years. Gee, is there a discrepancy? No, they were afflicted for 400 of the 430. They were there for a while with a pharaoh that knew Joseph, etc. Anyway, but they'll be afflicted in 400 years, but they will return to the land. When God tells that to Abraham, Satan's listening, and he knows now he has four centuries to lay down a minefield. When Moses later will send the twelve spies into the land, ten of them come back saying they're Nephilim in the land. Same word used in Numbers 13.33. So the terms of covenant, they were declared eternal and unconditional, despite what the PLO and the UN may think. It was reconfirmed by an oath in Genesis 22. It was confirmed to Isaac and to Jacob in Genesis 26. This commitment to Abraham is confirmed to Isaac and then to Jacob in Genesis 26. And by the way, the conditions under which it was confirmed to Isaac and Jacob were conditions of disobedience. It's not as if their obedience was a prerequisite to this covenant. It's unilateral. So despite their acts of disobedience, it's confirmed to Isaac and Jacob. And that's what Islam is also a challenge to, by the way. New Testament declares this covenant as immutable, unchangeable. Hebrews 6 and elsewhere. Well, Abraham becomes Abraham in Genesis 17. God changes his name to Abraham, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He confirmed his covenant to the father of many nations. He instituted circumcision as a sign. This is where circumcision is instituted as a sign. 
He not only changes Abraham's name to Abraham, he changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And he also promised him a son, a son of his own, not Ishmael, a son of his own. So we have a commitment of land to his descendants, as I mentioned, and uh, they'll return with a great possession. Uh, before we get into this, I'd like to give you a little bit of lesson in Hebrew. You might find this interesting. You know, most alphabets are phonetic. If you know how to pronounce, you can pronounce the words. If you know the alphabet, be it Russian or Latin or whatever. Hebrew is a little strange. It's not only phonetic, it is conceptual. Each letter has not only a sound, it has a meaning. Let's take a couple of examples show you what I mean. The first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is an aleph. On the screen there on the right, you see the way it's written today. The way you see Hebrew written today is the way it was written after the Babylonian captivity. The way it was written before Babylon was a little different. The Aleph was written to represent a longhorn oxen head. Aleph was the first letter of the alphabet. It also represented strength, like an ox, you see. The University of Arizona's Hebrew department has discovered if they, show, if they teach the kids how Hebrew is written before Babylon, they can learn the meaning of the letters. If you can know the meaning of the letters, you can read about 80% of Hebrew. It's astonishing. So Aleph means the first or strength or leader. Okay, that's easy, that's understandable. The second letter is Bet. It looks like a little teepee. It represents a house. That's not the way it's written today. It's got a different shorthand, but the original way it looked like a little teepee. That bet turns to become our B, if you will. If you can visualize it turning 90 degrees, it becomes our B. But it's a bet in Hebrew. The word bet means house or family. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, house of God, you see. If you take an Aleph, and bear in mind, all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Do you know that? Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Sanskrit, all go from right to left. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Latin, English, French, uh, uh, Russian, da-da-da-da, uh, etc. Okay? The Aleph and the Beth make up a word, Ab. Well, the Aleph, of course, is leader or strength. Bet is the house. A-B, Ab, is the leader of the house. That's their name for what? Father. Ab is the name of father. Abba is the familiar form of it. There's another letter called a He, which is a breath. Remember in Pygmalion, uh, Henry Higgins teaches Liza Doolittle to pronounce her in Hartford, Hereford, Hampshire, hurricanes hardly happen. You get her to pronounce her H's. H is just a breath. In the Hebrew, that breath can mean wind or it can mean spirit. But the hey, if you put a hey, which is probably originally meant like a hands lifted up or like an open window, but whatever, it means behold or revealed or a breath or wind, breeze, wind, or spirit. If you take a word and put a hey in the middle of it, you're speaking to the essence of that word. And if you put a hey between an aleph and a bet, you have ahab, the essence of the father. That's the word for love. In other words, the word for love is the essence of the father. The point I'm trying to make here, in the Hebrew alphabet, they convey not just sound, 
but conceptual meaning. It's a very different kind of a language. So when you take Abraham and Sarai, God simply puts a hey in the middle of the name. Abraham, Sarah. He gives them, the, he inserts the Spirit of God in both of them. Circumcision is due to sign. You know, it's kind of interesting if you study circumcision medically. There's a vitamin K, which is an element required for blood clotting. It's not formed until the fifth day uh, and through to the seventh day. There's also a material called prothrombin, which is also necessary for blood clotting. On the third day of an infant, it's only about 30% of normal. On the eighth day, it's 110% of normal. Then it levels off at 100% of normal. So if you plot these curves on a chart, the optimum time, if you're going to circumcise a child, is on the eighth day. We know that now medically. If you do it too early or too late, you run the risk of having a, you know, a continuing hemorrhage. The question I ask you is, how did Moses know that? This raises something else I have to share with you. The book of Acts tells us that Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Before he fled from Pharaoh and all that, he was trained as the prince of Egypt. He was trained in all their schools. We have copies of the medical records of that time in 1332 B.C. It's called Papyrus Ebers. And let me tell you some of the things that he must have been taught. Do you have an embedded splinter? You know what you do for an embedded splinter? You apply worm's blood and ass's dung. That's the way you take care of splinters. Try that sometime. Are you losing your hair? You apply six fats, the fats of a horse, a hippopotamus, a crocodile, a cat, a snake, and an ibex. That will take care of your losing hair, guys. Just thought I'd mention that. You're turning gray? Anoint with the blood of a black calf which has been boiled in oil or uh, fat of a rattlesnake. That'll work, huh? Great. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.